Lord, thank you that you invite us into your throne room and you allow us to come and commune with you in Christ, not on our own merit, but um, Lord, because of the salvation and the way of salvation that you made available for us. And not just so we can have forgiveness of sins, which is which is hugely significant, but largely also so that we can have fellowship with you. And so that Jesus might receive the reward that's wor- that um, is worthy of his sufferings and uh, the joy that was set before him. And so Lord, we thank you for this. We pray that as we open our Bibles, as we open your word this evening, that we would be prepared to receive uh, with hearts that are supple and open and uh, willing and obedient. We just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good evening. To welcome everybody here tonight. And uh, just to reiterate, this will be our last Wednesday night service this year. So uh, we will uh, be picking back up with Wednesday night services on January 3rd. So anyway, if you come here next Wednesday, we'll be so thankful that you're here, but you're just about a year too early. So uh, as we uh, work our way again this evening, we're going to be in the book of Mark. We're going to be looking at the 14th chapter as we look at the first 21 verses of this chapter. And to give you a little bit of a recap as to where we've been up to this point, or at least these last few weeks, is we are uh, coming towards the end of the Passion Week as Jesus makes his way towards the cross. And he has just finished up uh, these last two sessions talking uh, about the, what's known as the Olivet Discourse. So he was on the Mount of Olives and uh, addressing his disciples there. And this is really the last formal teaching that we're going to see in the book of Mark. So from this point forward, it's going to be much more of a narrative of the end uh, of Jesus as he makes his way towards the cross. So if you would, turn with me to Mark chapter 14, and we are going to look at these first couple verses to start off with. So in Mark 14, verse 1, we see, And after two days it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and scribes sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. So as we begin, we see uh, Jesus is uh, and his disciples are nearing the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover. And this is the first of three major feast seasons. And these major feasts really contain several feasts within themselves. So these three major feasts that we look at, we've got the Passover and Unleavened Bread, which also contains the uh, Feast of the First Fruits, uh, the Feast of the Harvest, uh, or the Feast of Weeks, which is known as Pentecost, and the Feast of Ingathering, which is also known as the Feast of Tabernacles. All right, so I'm going to show you a little slide here to elaborate a little bit more on these feasts. Not to panic you too much with a whole bunch of stuff up here, but these feasts are really broken up into two seasons, a spring season and a fall season, with the Passover being at the beginning of this spring season. And the importance of this uh, as Christians is really what I want to talk about for just a couple minutes, because I think we can look at these feasts and we, we see some Jewish tradition and, and holidays, but we really don't understand the importance that this plays in our Christianity and in the world at large. So what God has really done with the feasts is he has set forth a calendar, essentially, for how things are going to go down, that each one of these feasts has a bit of prophecy tied to it. 
And we can look at this spring section of feasts, and what we really see is uh, that that prophecy has already been fulfilled. So that's how we, we, this starts to unfold. We begin to understand that these things are prophetic because, like with any good prophecy, you know that it was prophecy because you can look back and go, hey, I heard that somewhere. That turned out to be true. That must have been prophetic. So we can look back at these spring feasts, and what I want to point out to you, as we've mentioned over these last several weeks, is that Jesus, as he's headed towards the cross, is really going to be the Passover lamb. So on Passover, Jesus is going to be sacrificed with all the other lambs as the sacrificial lamb, the perfect lamb of God. And then after that, he's going to be buried. And that following day, that following period, seven-day period, as a matter of fact, is called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So if you think about what bread signifies in the Bible, that bread, even at the Last Supper, Jesus says, take, this is my body. You could look and see that bread is a symbol of the body, and leaven is always a symbol in the Bible of sin. So essentially, Jesus, having no sin in his body, is then buried during this seven-day period, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But then the Feast of first fruits happens three days after Passover, and this is actually where Jesus then rises three days after Passover, right? And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that Jesus Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. So now we see three festivals or feasts that are all fulfilled prophetically in this one season by Jesus. Now then you fast forward some 50 days later during the Feast of Pentecost or the Festival of Weeks. It's called the Festival of Weeks because it occurs seven sevens. As we've talked about before, sevens are a period of weeks, so that's 49 days. And then that following day is the Feast of Pentecost. So 50 days later, penta meaning also the word 50, uh, we see where the Holy Spirit actually comes down upon the believers in the upper room. And he, and he really uh, impacts that early church. And this is the thing that kicks off and kickstarts the early church and really signifies the beginning of the church age, which is where we see we are right now. The church age being the summertime season, this time of harvest. So we see a great harvest that is taking place among his church. Now, what that leaves us with is three major fall festivals that are sometimes lumped together and called the Feast of Tabernacles, but what it really is is these three festivals that are up here and what uh, is commonly believed is that these three festivals will be prophetic about the second coming of Jesus, with uh, the rapture actually starting during the Feast of Trumpets. All right, The trump sounds, and we're all gathered up together. As This starts the end of the harvest. This is the last portion of this harvest period. When then that, that Festival of Trumpets, as that goes on, we see the tribulation period that Jeremy and Jared went over in this 13th chapter of the book of Mark, and that leads to the Day of Atonement, all right, Yom Kippur, as it's known uh, by the Jews. And that is really the point where uh, sin is going to be judged. At that point in time, it's all going to come down, the harvest is going to be complete, everything's going to be judged right there where Jesus makes his second coming, and then it's going to lead into that thousand-year reign, which we could look at as the Feast of Tabernacles, right, where uh, the, everything is brought in together. There's this beautiful festive celebration as we look forward to the new heaven and the new earth and the festival of Taber the Feast of Tabernacles doesn't take place over seven days. It takes place over eight days because seven is the number of completion. 
but eight is the number of new beginnings. So then we see the new heaven and the new earth that all come around at the end of this fall festival period. Now, that might have been way too much information for everybody. I'm a little worn out. Maybe you are too. But we're going to back up because I did have a point to all that that I hope I can make. Is that the first of these festivals, this Passover festival, is really like the Super Bowl for the Jews. So for the Jewish people, this is their big festival uh, above all of our other festivals. You could even call it the Juper Bowl. The, look, I drive around a lot during the day, okay? I have a lot of time to think about these things, and sometimes the very best I can come up with is Juper Bowl. And my poor wife has been married to me for 15 years, and she's heard these things, and they're, they're awful, I know, but I can't help it. It just come out. So anyway, I'm going to stick with it until everybody laughs. Juper Bowl. There you go. So, uh, but the, and it, at an even bigger side of things, what I really wanted to point out with that whole slide is that even when we don't understand what all is happening, what all is taking place in our world, rest assured, God has a plan. That he has got a plan, and everything that he has laid out is going to take place exactly. You can put it on a calendar. You can lay it all out. It's going to take place exactly as he has said it's going to. And that everything leading up to this point, uh, if you look at Leviticus chapter 23, I didn't put this up on the, on the screen, but if you turn with me to Leviticus chapter 23, what I wanted to just quickly point out as we look at, the, at, the, at these feasts and their importance, in the first verse what it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, The feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, are my feasts. So God is setting up right there as he speaks to these Israelites that these are not your feasts, these are my feasts. So what he's really doing is he's establishing this calendar so we can have things to look forward to and we can also have a, a bigger picture understanding that he does in fact have a plan for all these things. But going back to our story, because this was their Jewish Super Bowl, uh, they did not want to have this crucifixion take place, these chief priests, during this time. Because, as we've talked about, the population in Jerusalem has swollen up. Um, these festivals are a time where all the Jewish males are to come back into Jerusalem and make this pilgrimage. And what Josephus actually says, noted historian, uh, is that in this time period, you would say roughly 250,000 lambs are slaughtered during Passover. Now, if you just do a little quick math and figure that 10 people per lamb, you're looking at about 2.5 million people are within Jerusalem right now. It is at an all-time high as far as population. So these guys, these chief priests, uh, they're trying to be crafty. They're looking for a way to get Jesus and take him out and crucify him, and they really want to do it even after the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They don't want to have anything to do with getting him mixed up with the crowds because, frankly, he was popular. Right? They don't want to do anything that's going to get the crowd riled up. So they're trying to stay away from the angry mob. But, as we've just talked about, Jesus is going to be crucified on the Passover. And why? I think it's important for us to reemphasize this. It's because he is in control of this entire series of events. So if you flip with me just really quickly to John chapter 10, verse 18. And in his own words, if I backed up to verse 17, he said, Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. 
No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it again. And this command I have received from my Father. So what Jesus is telling us very clearly in plain English that we can understand, or plain Greek, is that he is the one that's in control. He's the one that's, that's driving this, even though it looks like there's all these outside forces. So if you've ever been in a spot where you feel like, God, are you really in control of this thing? Rest assured, he's, he's got a plan. He's going to see this thing through. All right, so let's move on to the next section as we look at verse 3. We're going to cover this through verse 9. And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, formerly known as Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard, then she broke the flask and poured it out on his head. And there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, Why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish, you may do them good. But for me, you do not always have. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you that wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, that this woman, that what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. So here we see the story of Mary. We're told uh, in other gospel accounts, and John in particular, that Mary is the woman that poured out this oil uh, upon Jesus. That what she's really doing is she is, she is pouring out praise upon him, is one way to look at it. And she, uh, she does this by actually taking this flask and breaking it. She doesn't just measure out a little bit and make sure she gives Jesus his one-tenth. She actually throws caution to the wind and breaks it and pours it out upon him. But there were naysayers in the crowd. There's always a naysayer somewhere, right? And isn't it amazing how one naysayer can get all of them stirred up? So if you look at it, in John chapter 12, he actually identifies this naysayer as none other than Judas Iscariot. And Judas, having not good intentions, uh, actually stirs up these guys that we're not even sure if their intentions were good or bad. And that's what happens a lot of times in crowds, is you'll see someone who doesn't have a great intention or a great heart will actually be the one that stirs up everybody else and gets them all going too. But uh, speaking of that, what we see in, in uh, John chapter 12, verse 6, and he said, this he said not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used to take it, uh, and, he, and he used to take what was put in it. So John uh, quickly identifies Judas as a thief. So first of all, in this story, this is actually taken a little bit out of the timeline. So if, if you looked at the first section of uh, chapter 12, this was actually uh, happening prior to Jesus even making his triumphal entry. But in the book of Mark and also in the book of Matthew, they take this story out of its normal chronological context and put it here, I think in part, to show us into the heart of Judas. 
So it's really like a, like a contrast. We see a lot of this on Sunday morning as Mike's going through Proverbs, and a lot of that poetry is comparing light and dark. And you get some of this with the story of Judas and uh, with Mary. You see this beautiful act of praise and worship, and you put it right up against this evil insidiousness that's going on inside the heart of Judas. Now he disguises it, saying that uh, this could have been taken and given to the poor, but we find out as we read on that really he just wanted to be uh, pilfering a little bit out of the money bag. So this perfume that she poured out, this spikenard, was uh, an oil that was taken from India. It was very costly. It was a very valuable uh, commodity. At this time, they don't have a First State Community Bank. So if you want to put away anything into your savings, you can't just roll up to the drive-up window and put it in. What instead they would do is they would invest in in uh, valuable and costly oils and spices. And what Mary most likely was doing with this is she was probably saving this uh, oil up, this perfume up, to be used for her dowry. So ladies, you love this part. At this time, if you wanted to attract yourself a husband, you had to actually come with some money. Now, I don't know what I did wrong, but uh, I apparently got some debt instead of money. I don't know, we had something wrong with this whole situation. Sorry. Um, anyway, but, but this is what was done. So in this beautiful act, what Mary is really doing, she's taken her future, everything she has saved, and she has said, you know what, I am going to give it to Jesus right now. And just if we put this into our common context, so you get an idea what we're talking about. When they say 300 denarii, that's 300 days wages, so an entire year's worth of income, and I looked this up on the Google so you know it's correct, but the average household income in the state of Missouri last year was $48,000. You're not talking about a $50 uh, bottle of perfume here, folks. We're talking about nearly $50,000 just dumped onto the head of Jesus. And what Judas actually says in verse 4, if you went back into the and looked at the word actually in the Greek, is this word for waste is actually the word perdition. Right? So you could, you could say, why this perdition? Why this waste to be dumped out upon uh, Jesus? Now, so hold on to that just a little bit, and we'll cover that a little bit later on. But the word waste is uh, actually the word perdition in Greek. So then in verse uh, six, Jesus responds in uh, back in our text in Mark 14. And what he says is he's not trying to say and discourage anyone from giving to the poor. He's, he's trying to make it clear that she's done a good thing for me. And it's important for us to understand, especially as we have naysayers in our life, that anything you give to Jesus is never a waste. It never is. But you'll have people in your life that'll see you're trying to give and you're trying to do good and you're trying to, trying to do things for the Lord, but because it doesn't show up on your W-2, why are you doing that? Why are you wasting your time? Why are you wasting your energy? Why are you wasting your effort? Why all this perdition? But in fact, there is no waste when it comes to Jesus. And, and Jesus, again, he's not telling us not to take care of the poor. I think what he's trying to communicate even more clearly is the poor you will have with you always, which is just a fact, because of sin, because of greed, there's never going to be an eradication of poor. Uh, there, it's just, it runs rampant. Not until the end when Jesus comes back and we're, you know, we're back down here at the Festival of Tabernacles, we're not going to see the eradication of, of greed. Therefore, the poor are always going to be here. 
But I think what Jesus is trying to say that's more important is you won't have me with you always. And I think a lot of times about how many opportunities to do something for the Lord, to pour something out for the Lord that I've had, that I've said, boy, don't know if I'm going to take that phone call. I think I'm going to let that go to voicemail. You know, I'll pick that up a little bit later. And yet those opportunities don't always come back around. So there is a time window that we have because the fact of the matter is this, his will be done. It doesn't always mean we're going to be in his will that's going to be done, but it will be done. So as we feel that conviction and and feel that burden on our heart to do that thing, and we go, boy, I don't know, that might might cost me. I, I could go do that, but boy, that sure may cost me something. I'm not sure I'm willing to give it. I think it's important to come back to this spot in the story and realize I'm not going to be with you always. I'm not going to be in this spot at this moment. He's not going to leave us or forsake us, but those opportunities don't come around all the time to anoint the head of Jesus before, the, before he walks into the temple triumphantly you know, and anoint him for burial. So uh, the other thing to just glean from this too is that Mary, because she finds herself consistently at the feet of Jesus, this is the same Mary that was at the feet of Jesus when her sister was working around the house and she came to Jesus to complain, you know, here she is just sitting around and I'm working and working and working. This is the same Mary that we see again doing this. And I think because of that, she has a a unique spiritual insight. None of the disciples understand that Jesus is heading into Jerusalem to die. They still don't get it. Even at the end, they don't understand it. And yet here is Mary paying attention, sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to what he has to say, and she is perceptive enough through the power of the Spirit to understand that, that she can anoint him and do this thing for his burial. So there's some interesting notes to take from that. All right, let's move on to verse 10 through 16. And then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare that we may eat the Passover? And he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And then they will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared. There make ready for us. So his disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he said to them, and they prepared the Passover. So what we begin with in verse 10 is we see the plan for betrayal. So Judas, as we see his heart from the previous section, is already filthy. He's decided this is... I'm going to go ahead and go through with this. I'm going to sell Jesus out. And what he sells him out for, as we're told in Matthew 26, 15, was 30 pieces of silver. Literally the price of a slave. Now this was also fulfilling of prophecy. If you flip all the way back to Zechariah chapter 11, if you were to look at Zechariah chapter 11 and verse 12, what he says is then I said to them, If it is agreeable to you, give me my wages, and if not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages thirty pieces of silver. 
And the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, that princely price they set on me. So I took thirty pieces of silver, and I threw threw it into the house of the Lord for the potter. So in the story of Judas, after he's given this money to betray Jesus, and he does in fact betray Jesus, he sees what all transpires, and he has this horrible guilt upon him. So he goes back to the chief priests, and he tries to give the 30 pieces of silver that he's taken, this price that was set, he tries to give it back to them. But they refuse to take it, so Judas, fulfilling prophecy, throws the money out in the floor of the temple, in the house of the Lord. Now, these guys are thrifty, so they're certainly not going to waste 30 pieces of silver. So what do they do? They gather up the money, and uh, they decide they can't put it in the temple treasury. So instead, we'll go out and buy a potter's field. And a potter's field was literally a place where potters would go out, and they would dig looking for clay to be able to use to make their pots. So there, it would be a field with all these holes already dug in it, which would be a perfect spot for them to purchase to bury Gentiles or bury people that, that hadn't been claimed by anyone. So that's really the fulfillment of this prophecy that we see. And uh, as we look again then at the following verses, as Jesus lays out this plan, beginning in verse 12, for the men to go and find this room for the Passover, it sure seems a whole lot like uh, some kind of Mission Impossible thing. Like, go into the town, find a guy carrying a pitcher of water around on his head, and then follow that guy until you get to the, you know, you can almost hear the theme music, you know, the boom, 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 boom. But uh, part of the reason this would stand out, for one, in this, uh, in this culture, men just simply do not carry water around on their heads. That's a, that's a female's job to do. So it would be like uh, seeing a man carry a purse around and wearing high heels going down the street. You know, you just don't see that every... Well, you probably see that now more often. Never mind. Uh, it would maybe look like this guy. Listen, if I'm going to be a guy carrying around water, just so you know, I'm going to look like this dude right here. I'm going to have a big old pole with about 50 buckets of water just to prove how manly I am. Just in case there's any question about my toughness, here I am with all my water. But I think the reason that this is important, if we look back at the story of Judas, and he's looking for, it says right there in uh, the end of verse 11, where he might conveniently betray him. Jesus is very sharp, so he's making sure that the whereabouts for their Passover dinner are not just known and understood by everybody. So the reason for the mission impossible could very well be that he wanted to make sure the location where they're going to celebrate Passover together, that he would have an unimpeded time with his 12 that he wanted to spend this last supper with. So he makes it seem like a bit of a mystery, but in reality, this is a part of his plan all coming together. Now, just to throw a little nugget out there, this is quite possibly the same upper room that we see in Acts chapter 1 verse 13 when we talked about Pentecost and the Holy Spirit coming down upon the early church. Is this possibly that same upper room? It's also quite possibly the same upper room we see in Acts chapter 12 verse 12, and we learn there that it's the house of a lady named Mary who is the mother of a guy named John, whose surname is Mark. The same Mark that is writing this gospel to us right here. So I think uh, what I wanted to bring out with that is this preparation that was made. Jesus was probably fully aware of all these preparations and making all these plans uh, 
as he goes in and out of the temple and in and out of teaching. We don't have a complete record of how he spent his entire day. So it's very possible that he was planning all this ahead of time and making sure everything was laid out and ready to go, but his disciples just didn't know it. And I'm really encouraged by that. You know, I think about uh, all the things I worry about in the course of my day, and, and I can't quite figure it out. But, but, you know, God does this to us. He only gives us a little bit that we can understand. Okay, go find a guy carrying a water pitcher around. Okay, got it. Find guy, water pitcher. Got it. Got it. Found the guy, Lord. Found the guy with the water pitcher. Okay, follow this guy. He, this is how he reveals his will to us. This is how he reveals his plans piece by piece. Because quite frankly, if he revealed everything he had planned, I couldn't handle it. I tell Angela all the time, if you want me to do something, give me three things. Give me three things at a time because anything more than three things, I'm going to forget and it's going to get messed up. And I had a meeting on Monday night that I had to, had to go to late and she said, here are all the steps you have to follow to have dinner ready. You have to take out the garlic bread, flip the garlic bread, put this in the oven, take this out of the oven, put this in the microwave, take this out of the microwave. And then whatever you do before you leave, make sure you shut off the oven. Okay, yeah, got it. That was like 12 things, but yeah. And, you know, I'm in the middle of something, so I paid attention like any guy does. But yeah, oh yeah, got that. So I did the thing. I did every step, garlic bread, in, out, flip, turn up, microwave, timer. Okay, headed off to my meeting. I'm driving to Salem, Missouri, and an hour in, uh, driving through Mark Twain like this with no cell phone service, I went, oh, I forgot to shut the oven off. Out of all the plans that she told me, the most important one was shut the oven off so you don't burn dinner, dummy. So I can't call her to tell her I left the oven on. So right as I'm walking into my meeting, I said, I think I forgot the oven. And she said, yep, sure did. There you go. You can't give me any more than that many things to do. And, and, and I think we're like this. You know, we, we can only handle so much of what he has for us to do at a time. So he gives us this thing, okay, I can be diligent in that. I can handle that. I'll do that. But the beautiful part about it is, is no matter what we can handle and what we're capable of, he always has preparations for us. That he's preparing a place for us. Even beyond this life, he says that in John 14, verse 2 through 3, that I go to prepare for you a room in my Father's house. He is making those preparations. He's doing the work. I don't have to think about every little step along the way. I just have to do the thing that he's put in front of me and knowing he's going to be taking care of the next thing that I have to move to. Sorry, I burnt dinner. All right. Picking back up in verse 17 as we see the Last Supper. And in the evening he came with the twelve, and now as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful, and to say to him one by one, Is it I? And he said, and another said, Is it I? And he answered and said to them, It is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be good, it would have been good for that man if he had never been born. So if we look at this uh, quote that these guys have, this is it I, and we looked at how it was maybe better translated in the Greek, uh, again to go back to that, you could translate it like this. It is not I, is it? 
I mean, you have to love these guys and their honesty. Like, they, they really, truly didn't know if it was them that was going to do the betrayal. And I would like to think that I'm, I'm pretty good. I, I do a pretty good job in my day. But do we really know what's in our heart? I think these guys probably had an understanding better than we give them credit for. You know, because what they're really saying is, it's not I, is it? Maybe it could be. I don't know. But without the inviting and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, without God allowing His Holy Spirit and Him to walk alongside us, we have a lot of blind spots. <laughs> There's a lot of things that we don't even know about our own hearts. So uh, to, to look at this story just a little bit deeper, if you want to flip back with me to John chapter 13, I do think it gives us some added uh, insight. In John chapter 13, uh, picking up in verse 18, as Jesus is again giving this address, but from John's account, he says, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture may be, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. And this is a quote from uh, Psalm 41.9, and he says, He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. And now I tell you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he, that I am God, I am the Messiah. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. So here, Jesus is talking about the Trinity, because he's going to send his Holy Spirit, receive him, you've received me, receive me, you receive the Father. And when Jesus said these things, he has he was troubled in his spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now, there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of the disciples whom Jesus loved. This is John. Simon Peter, therefore, motioned to him to ask who it was that he spoke. And then, leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now, after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this, for some thought, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus had said to him, Buy some things we need for the feast, or that he should give some money to the poor. And having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately, and it was night. So we see some added insight into this story. We see, first of all, their seating positions, which are significant at a Jewish table. We see John sitting to the right of Jesus. Now, in, in these seats, this is not the, the painting that we see at the Lord's Supper. They're all sitting at a straight table. These are most likely U-shaped tables, and in the Middle East, you actually sit on the floor and you recline as you eat. Now, uh, we had the opportunity to do this while we were in Israel at Abraham's tent. It was a wonderful dinner. The food was awesome. It is really stinking hard to sit on the floor and not have some dude's feet in your face. So, by the way, and Justin Callahan has got some stinky feet. Like, you don't want to sit next to that guy with his feet in your face. But you get the idea where you're actually reclined and leaning to the side, and you're able to, to eat like that. So that's the reason John said he was able to lean back into Jesus' bosom because he sat on Jesus' right-hand side. But then that puts Judas Iscariot to Jesus' left. All right? So 
Uh, what's interesting about that is that puts Judas at actually the position of honor at this Middle Eastern table setting. So Jesus, who, who laid out all this, who had it all set up, he is, he's the master of this event, places Judas, the very one who's going to betray him, at his left at the spot of honor. And uh, Judas, as we see in John seventeen twelve, and I think part of the reason why, when we look at, at the end uh, there in verse 21, where Jesus says, uh, the Son of Man indeed goes just as is written of him, it would have been good for that man had he never been born, is that Jesus refers to Judas as the son of perdition. And if you recall back uh, just a few minutes ago when we are talking about that word perdition and meaning waste, is that ultimately what he's saying is Judas wasted his opportunity. He had every possible chance. And so being the guest of honor, sitting to the left of Jesus, this very act of allowing him to dip bread in your cup with him, that's an act of friendship. It's an also known in that culture as an act of reconciliation between two men or forgiveness. So you could really see that even before Judas does this thing, Jesus leaning over, giving him an opportunity to be forgiven one more time. And, uh, you know, as, as we go through this, we're, we're ending our Wednesday nights, and this, frankly, this is a tough one to end on. Like, this is not the, the biggest bright spot of a story. When we look at a life just completely wasted here with Judas, and, and a man that ends up going out eventually and hanging himself, you know? But, to, to spin that, though, at the same time as I was thinking about this and, and, and trying to process it, um, I wonder how many times I've sold out Jesus, you know? I, I think about my own life and how many times I've sold him out for way less than 30 pieces. I maybe sold him out for a TV show, for a friend, for a relationship. Man, I have sold him out for, for nearly nothing. And it's convicting to me. But then, the part that's uplifting about this, don't worry, there is some uplifting pieces, is how Jesus responded. I just talked to you about Judas sitting in the spot of honor and being offered forgiveness. But even at the very end, in Matthew 26, 50, as Judas is coming in to actually kiss Jesus and betray him, Jesus' response is, friend, why have you come? So he even still, at that point, refers to him as friend. Do you know that? That's true about all of us. You know, I, a lot of times I feel condemned, I feel convicted. Beyond conviction, I feel condemnation more than anything. You know, I think about the stuff I've done, I think about what I've done with my day, how nothing seems to be going right, it's all coming down on me, and yet Jesus, even to his worst enemy, offers him the cup, offers him a spot to dip bread calls him friend. And that's, that's really what we need to remember about this story, is that even in the life of Judas, I do believe with all my heart that Jesus hoped beyond all hope that Judas would have accepted, that he would have had true repentance at the end of this, so that he could forgive, right? And as we think about that, and the question I put up there, you know, do you feel condemned? Do you feel condemned in the things that are going on in your life? What I want to leave you with as encouragement, if you flip back with me to Romans in chapter 8. And in, at the end of chapter 7, what Paul is really lamenting here in this spot is he is 
he is really crying out about his flesh and his and just his weakness. And what he says there in verse 24, chapter 7, just above it, is, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But then if we skip down to chapter 8, in verse 1, he says, Therefore there is no condemnation to those who are in Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So that's the thing we have to hang on to, right? That, that when we're in that spot, when it feels like nothing is going right, I've been a jerk to my family, I have ruined uh, this business relationship, I, I, I'm, I'm stressed out beyond all belief, I feel like this weight is down upon me, I have this to fall back on that I can remember that there is no condemnation as I walk with Jesus. There's none. So that's really my prayer for us tonight. So Father, thank you so much for this truth. That as we look at what is essentially a heavy story in, in a life that is wasted, a life of perdition, that even that, even all that, what appears to be waste and is waste, uh, that once there is acceptance, and once there is a belief and a trust in you, that that goes to beautiful forgiveness. That there is no condemnation when we are in you and walking with you. So I thank you for that, Father. I pray that it would be a reminder to us that as you were buried, that so too was all our sin. And not only was it uh, taken care of and cleaned up, it was completely obliterated from the record book. So I thank you for that, Father. We cling to that, and we, uh, I just pray for everyone here tonight that we would uh, remember that as we go out throughout the rest of this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, for those of you who are already angry that we're not going to have Wednesday nights until the first of the year, I love it. <laughs> and we've actually built in these rhythms throughout our year because uh, up until recently, did you know that the NFL was the most watched and really had become America's sport and largely because it was the only sport left in the 2000s that left people wanting more at 16 weeks. And so we have these rhythms in life, and hopefully you get left wanting more, and so you come back excited in January, right? So we also want to give you guys opportunity to minister, to reach out in the community for the next season, and to hopefully then, uh, you know, to spend time with family and enjoy each other. Um, you see the construction going on? What we're doing is uh, expanding the sanctuary that way. So we'll have uh, the foyer that really no longer gets used as sanctuary. And then uh, accessibility to the bathrooms. And then this uh, door here is going to move over to about where that thermostat is right there on that wall. Maybe not quite that far. And so these doors will match up. And then down into the new uh, foyer, there'll be a ramp for handicap accessibility. And then right there where that door is, uh, that will become a nursing mother's room. And, uh, you know, two nur nursing mothers, not a whole party of nursing mothers, but two. And then uh, you'll have easy accessibility to the nursery and a, a one-way mirror that you can see in and be a part of the service. So we're just trying to make the thing more uh, accessible. And so thank you guys for your patience. Uh, God bless you. We'll see you Sunday.